to be a fool for Christ, but to find pride in being a fool for Christ. You know what I mean? To receive accolation for how foolish you are in Christ. It's different when you're just a fool just to be a fool and no one gives you any accolades. That's what we're going after. That's what the Lord is transforming us into, that we don't need the approval of men because we have the approval of our Father. Amen? And, and then it says this. I want to finish this. It says, uh, when an outsider enters, he is convicted by all. He is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed. And so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. Our heart for this, why do we prophesy? Why do we allow people to speak in tongues with an interpretation? Not only because the scripture says it, but we believe that the scripture teaches with all of our heart that people will fall on their face before God and encounter the presence of God when we do these things. So we're going to keep fighting for it. I want to share a, a praise. Uh, last week, I gave a word about someone dealing with alcoholism. What I didn't say when I first went up is God gave me the name for the person. And so I wrote it down on my wife's phone. And we went, and we went a little longer, and Nick came up and encouraged people to keep pressing in. And I came up one more time. No one came up until the end. And the person whose name I wrote down came up. And the Lord encountered them in a powerful way. And breakthrough started to happen. We're going to move forward with prophecy and with words. Whether it's messy, whether it's awkward, whether it makes us lose the warm, fuzzy feeling. We're going to do it because God has given it to us as a gift. And we're going to utilize it. I, I want to share some more breakthroughs. See, there's breakthrough happening. We, we were going through a war last week. Some of us were going through war this week as well, right? I'm going to take a drink for this testimony because it's so good. Oh, there we go. There are some things going on with our building uh, that we've been praying for, that God has directed us in. Uh, there are two main things. Parking lot. I don't know if you noticed, it's like, the opposite of Frogger as we're going through the parking lot. We're like trying to dodge the holes into Hades. We're praying for that. God, would you, would you provide a fix? And we're praying for the HVAC. So a couple weeks, we're getting quotes for the parking lot. To redo the whole parking lot is about $150,000. Yee. Hosanna. We have a friend uh, who knew a guy who had a company, and he came out and he figured out a strategy so they'd just be able to cut out sections that were bad and repave it. And this company gave us a really good uh, deal. They said, we can do this for $12,000. Okay, okay, this is more attainable. But we have this HVAC issue where we're only running the building on half of what we need. We're trying to finish a new nursery for all these babies being born, praise God. Come on. This is a fruitful church, and we take every command of God seriously here. And so we're praying, and we're like, God, we, we feel like we got to focus on the, on the HVAC because we, we, we want to champion our kids and, and do this for them, make a space for them. And so a, a guy calls me, another friend who I've been telling about, you know, just our parking lot and the HVAC, and he asks, hey, what do you guys do about the parking lot? I'm like, you know, we can't do it right now because we're really going to save toward the HVAC. He said, well, I tell you what, I'll pay for the parking lot. Come on. 
a guy who doesn't go here, who we've just kept talking, said, I'll write you the check for the parking lot to get it repaired. Praise God. So guess what? We are, um, you know, sometimes you need something like that because the Lord says, yeah, I see you. I know what you need. I know the people to bring in your path. So right now, just to bring everyone on the same page, we're asking God for $28,000 to come in so that we can get the HVAC done, we can get the back area done. Uh, pray if you would have a part in that. We trust God. Listen, he hasn't just done it for the parking lot. He's done it time after time after time after time after time after time, and he will do it again. He will do it again. So I just want to share that uh, with you. Uh, one association conference coming up. Hey, guess what? We're going to Houston. It's going to be October 10th through October 13th. Uh, we have handouts printed on the back uh, counter. It's going to be really fun. We're actually all staying at a giant hotel with a conference area. So we're going to stay there. We're going to go to the conference there. We're going to be around each other all the time. It is going to be an amazing time. Whatever you do, if you have no vacation time, please pray and then go ask your boss for favor that you can take off for these days. I, I don't say this lightly, okay? I'm not just pulling a charismatic card out of my pocket. Uh, this is a life-changing event. It always is. Being around these people inspire me. Being together as a family, I want to tell you, I love this body here, the Arising Church, with all of my heart. You guys are the greatest collection of gifts that God has ever given me. And I thank God for you. And for us all to be together as one family is super, super special. So October 10th through the 13th, people are going to come in Thursday. We're going to worship like crazy until Sunday. And then we're going to come home and be family. <laughs> it's going to be awesome. Uh, so we have that going on. Um, prayer. I want to talk about prayer for a second. This summer, we are going to devote a lot of time to prayer. I'm, I'm convicted more and more. I, I read something the other day that I'm not going to read necessarily right now. Uh, but I would take a good prayer life over being a powerful person in the spirit any day. Because it's out of intimacy with the Father that we can actually move forward in power by his spirit. We are going to seek God with all of our heart this summer in prayer. Uh, on two, it's going to be Tuesday night starting June 4th. You can write that down. We're not going to meet at our houses for home group. We're going to meet here at the church. Uh, and we're just going to seek the face of God from 7 until 8.30, June 4th, every Tuesday throughout the summer. Along with that, uh, we feel called now more than ever to intercede on behalf of Crystal Lake. June 7th, we're going to start prayer walks, Friday mornings. Come on. At 7 a.m. on Fridays. Starting June 7th, we're going to meet in the Starbucks parking lot in downtown Crystal Lake, and we're going to walk around and pray for an hour, for an hour and 15 minutes, as long as you can until you have to go to work. And we're just going to walk, and we're going to declare that the Spirit of God is going to overtake this city. See, the enemy's upset because we started burning down his fields. He's retaliating. We don't have to be afraid. We're going to fight this in prayer. Our battle is in prayer. Uh... Friday mornings, please do whatever you can to be there for that. Amen? All right, let's pray for the kids. If you just want to reach out your hand to our children. God, thank you for these kids. Thank you for these kids. 
Thank you that you care about them infinitely more than we do, that you know what lays before them, that you will empower them. God, we pray just for a deep, heartfelt love for you to rise in these kids that would be expressed in the way that they talk and the way that they communicate with each other and the way that they encourage those who are older than them. God, would you pour out your spirit, Jesus, on our children today. In your name we pray, amen. amen. Kiddos, you are dismissed. Hey, Dan, friend, I believe I have a blue and black pen, pen marker under the chair somewhere. Oh, thank you. Thank you, Dan. Thank you for being such a servant. Nehemiah chapter 13. Here we are. The last chapter of Nehemiah. Um, this has been a fun journey, hasn't it? Everyone's like, no, not really. So, I mean, sort of, I guess. So, quick recap. Ready for a 30-second recap? So we start out Nehemiah, where there's this burden placed on Nehemiah because the city of Jerusalem and the walls are in ruins. They are destroyed. This burden begins to well up in him, and he says, I have to be the one to do something. Remember, it wasn't just about the walls being destroyed, right? It was about the relationships with God's people and God the Father being reconnected, reunited, rebuilt up. And guess what? Nehemiah says yes when most people were saying no. And so he begins to lead the charge, and guess what happens? He faces opposition. Not once, not twice, but we see three oppositions coming toward Nehemiah from our good friend Tobiah, Sanballat, and some dude named Geshem. Opposition. Does Nehemiah give up? Does Nehemiah give up? All right, so here's the deal. If you're from like a, a Methodist church or something like that where it is a sin to say something back, we ain't there, okay? So, did Nehemiah give up? No. Yeah, come on. He kept fighting. And guess what? People began to return to the city in which God was building. And they returned and their hearts were being stirred up. There was more opposition, but they were being stirred for the things of God. Maybe there's a word here for someone that you've been out of church for a long time and God is beginning to stir your heart in the return. Let it happen in Jesus' name. And so their hearts are stirred up and they begin to confess their sin. And we saw that confession isn't just saying, this is what I've done wrong. It's saying, God, this is what doesn't belong. Taking it down and saying, this is what does belong and replacing it. And we see that with this confession became a renewal of covenant. God's people deciding in their own heart that I want to make a dedication and a renewal to my God saying, this is what I'm going to obligate myself to. This is what I'm going to separate myself to. And all these valiant leaders began to rise. When no one else would go, when everyone else was too comfortable, they arose and they began to repopulate the city of God. Amen. We see that there's 
This repopulation, this resurgence of valiant people coming to repopulate Jerusalem. And, and they have this dedication for the wall. And over and over and over we saw that the people began to rejoice and rejoice. It said six times in two verses, joy, rejoice, joy, rejoice. That's why we're fighting for joy right now as a body. Can you see how we've lived out this story as we've been preaching through it? We're not going to settle for anything less than finding the joy that God has promised us. Because that's where our strength comes from. Now we get to chapter 13. And see, chapter 13, with all my heart, I hope it could have gone something like this. The people rallied together and no enemy could fight against them. They were strong, and they were filled with love and joy, and the unity, oh, the unity was unmatched. If you've read this chapter before, that's not how chapter 13 goes at all. Chapter 13 is littered with compromise. See, what happens, Nehemiah goes away for a little bit. He leaves. He has to go back to the service of, his, of the king, and he goes back, and people kind of disagree on the time period. Some people say he's gone for about a year and a half. Some people say 12 years. If, if I had to give an answer, I'd say it was somewhere between 8 and 12 years he was gone. A couple of clues in the text, so we'll go through those. And he's gone for a period of time. And what happens, things start slipping. Have you ever, you know how sometimes you can get sucked into a YouTube spiral where you just keep watching videos? And eventually you get to a place in this YouTube spiral where there's someone just getting hurt or falling, right? Tripping at the finish line, going for the touchdown and fumbling. It, just, it, it always ends here. And this is literally the picture of what happens in Nehemiah chapter 13. That they were going strong, going strong, going strong. Dedication, everyone's filled with joy. The leader leaves and compromise begins to happen. Things start to slip. There's a place in Nehemiah 13. There is a place that is prepared for an enemy of God. How do we get to that point? Going from joy and, and finding satisfaction in the Lord and standing strong in our identity to preparing a place for an enemy of God in us. I'm going to kind of go through a breakdown, and we can see this in three ways. When we talk about the house of God, we're going to see that a whole bunch. When we think of the house of God, we can think of the church, right? This church body that God has given us. We can think of our own family, our own family unit. Our church, our family unit, and then we can think of ourself. How do we get to the point of allowing an enemy of God to move in? Let's look at Nehemiah chapter 13. Here's the first thing. I'm in 1 Corinthians 13. That's going to be very unhelpful right now. Here we go. On that day, they read from the book of Moses, the Torah, 
in the hearing of all the people, and it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God. For they did not meet the people of Israel with bread and water, but hired Balaam against them to curse them. Yet our God turned the curse into a blessing. As soon as the people heard the law, they separated from Israel all those of foreign descent. You see, this is a flashback. Here's the first thing. How do we get to the point in our own life of letting an enemy of God creep in? Sometimes we think of obvious enemies of God, right? We think of people who are coming against the church, and sometimes it's what's stirred up in our own flesh. Here's the first thing. I'm going to try my best to spell everything correctly this week. Here's the first thing. We let the enemy in to the house of God, whether it's our church, our families, or ourselves, when we replace gifts for God. Have you ever, do you know what it is to divert something? This was assigned toward this specific thing, and then you take it and then you place it somewhere else. I want you to imagine that your mom, does anyone have any cash on them? Like a dollar, five dollars? Does anyone have any cash? Can someone just bring me cash? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> that urgency, come on. <laughs> I want you to imagine, you'll get this back, I promise. This isn't one of those sermons where I'll rip it up to teach you a lesson. I, I value this very much. So, imagine your mom says, I'm going to give you $5 to go buy stamps at the store, right? You have an authority. I'm giving you $5 to go buy stamps because we have to mail some letters, something important. Okay, you're on your way to buy stamps and guess what? It's 1994, and there's still a white hen pantry. It's a northern thing. Don't worry about it, you southerners. Uh, is it a southern thing? I don't know. No. no, good. Okay, cool. This is ours, white hen. You go to white hen, right? And oh, man, the candy looks so good. And you spend the $5 on candy instead of what your mom gave you the $5 for. That's a diversion. Do you understand? It's not good. See, this is what's happening right now. We get to this place in this story where they're backtracking a little bit. They're talking about something that happened in Deuteronomy because it's setting the scene for what happens next. It says, now before this, Eliashib... The priest, he was the high priest, was appointed over the chambers of the house of God and who was related to Tobiah. The word related here means allied. It's not actually blood relation. It's saying this, that this high priest of God was allied to the point of being like a brother to Tobiah. Remember Tobiah? Tobiah was an Ammonite. How could this happen? We just read in verses 1 and 3, they weren't supposed to ever do this. Not only was he an Ammonite, but he was a direct enemy of God. 
See, it's kind of interesting in, in the prophetic picture of what's happening. Because the Ammonites didn't give them any bread, they didn't give them any water, and they tried to block their way. Isn't it interesting that Jesus is the bread of life? Out of him comes living water, and he is the way. Do you see there was this anti-Christ evil that was being poured out from the Ammonites? And they said, no, this is going to have no part of the house of Israel. But guess what? The high priest of God lets him in. Not only does he let him in, but look down at verse 5. He prepared for Tobiah a large chamber where there had previously put the grain offering. So not only did he prepare a place for the enemy of God inside of the house of God, but he removed, he replaced the place where the gifts for God we're meant to stay. Do you see what's going on? Tobiah. It said in chapter 2, verse 10, if you remember, that they were greatly displeased that someone came to seek the welfare of Israel. This was Tobiah, now living in God's house. It said in chapter 4, that Tobiah, they plotted together to fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion. Tobiah, wait... How did this high priest let this happen? A high priest. I, I could teach for eight weeks on a high priest. I want to give you a couple snippets on the high priest, Eliashib. Did you know a high priest had to be pure? Not only talking about spiritually pure, pure in his conduct, but there's actually a standard in Leviticus 21 of physical pureness. That had to be present. The high priest who let in this evil man. He had access to the will of God. The high priest. Direct access. He had the Urim and the Thummim. In Numbers 27-21. That he was the one who was able to inquire of the Lord. And to receive his will. The high priest who let in the enemy of God. How could he do this? Not only this, but he was the one in charge of making atonement for all this sin. Not only for himself, but for the people, the high priest. How could he do this? In Leviticus 16, it talks about he's able to go in the most holy place. The high priest was the one who was closest to the manifest presence of God. How could he let this happen? You know, it's always fun to paint yourself as a hero in a story, isn't it? Here are the great things that Nehemiah did, and I'm, I'm just like him in this. That's much more easy and fun to reconcile in our heart. What the Lord was showing me is that I am Eliashib. That we need to see ourselves as Eliashib in this moment. See, just like him, the high priest, did you know that we are a priest? In second, in 1 Peter 2 9, it says that we are high priests, that we are priests together through our high priest, Jesus Christ, in Hebrews 4. That we are priests, just like Eliashib. That we are also pure, and it's not even a physical pureness. But did you know that our souls have been purified by obedience to the truth? 
First Peter 1.22 teaches this. So, so far, just like him, we're a priest, that our souls have been made pure. Did you know that we don't need access to God through the Urim or the Thummim, but we have access to the Helper, the Holy Spirit? John 14, 26, 16, 13, James 1, 5. That when we need wisdom, we don't have to go to a priest, that he's given it to us, and the Holy Spirit is our helper, and he will lead us into all truth. So far, we're matching up to Eliashib pretty closely. See, the leader, Eliashib, he was a leader of the priests and God's people. Not only are we leaders of God's people, but it says in Matthew 5 that we are lights to the world. Stepped it up a notch. We have personal atonement that when we call upon the name of the Lord, we will be saved. We have a direct access. Just like Eliashib. Like he was closest to the presence. Did you know we now stand before God with being unveiled? That the veil has been torn and we can stand before him unveiled. Matthew 27, 51, 2 Corinthians 3, 18. So it's hard when you see someone like this high priest letting Tobiah, the enemy, into the house of God. But the truth is, as priests, we have done the same exact thing in one way or another. And what I hope today is that God would begin to reveal a couple of these things. Remember, we're going to look at some diversion. I'm going to read verses 5 through 9. And I want to talk about this. How do we get there? How do we begin to replace the gifts that were meant for God and to put them towards something else? The first thing we saw in verses 1 through 3, we ignore instruction. Did you know that this instruction, like I said, was given in Deuteronomy? That to have nothing to do with these people and the instruction was ignored. That's what we just found out. When we talked about the word that he was related to, when, that he was allied to, that he started to form a bond. You can imagine this wasn't just an overnight relationship that began to form with this high priest and this enemy of God. You can imagine the smooth talking that must have went on in the short encounters that led to longer encounters, that led to longer encounters, that led to a friendship, that led to a dwelling uh, in some capacity together, that this relationship and this bond was forming with an enemy of God. The person that Nehemiah was so adamantly against, a bond was formed with. We're going to go through in a second just to identify and to define what an enemy of God is. But I, I want to ask you right now, as you take inventory of your own soul, have you noticed any place in your life where you've begun to form a bond with something that you know is not of God? With something just like Tobiah that wanted to cause confusion. Did you know that when we form relationships and bonds with things that are not of God, that it comes with this confusion. That what we once could so clearly see as being anti-Christ, anti-God, 
now begins to form a bond. We become confused of the call on our life. We become confused about God's word and the authority of his word. We become confused about the people of God. Because we've begun to form a bond. It said in verse 5, if you remember, it says that he prepared for Tobiah a large chamber where they had previously put, and I'm going to go through that list. How do we get here? That's what we're talking about. So not only do we form a bond, but we prepare a place for all those mamas having babies out there. Before you have a baby, you prepare a place. What was once the office now becomes a nursery. What was once the man cave, man cave, I think the whole concept's kind of stupid. Like, when you have a family, just be with your family. I don't know. I might get an email about that later, but just be with your family. But what was once something meant for something, when there's something new birthed, it takes on something else. Do you see? I used the word something four times in one sentence. I hope that didn't confuse you. But there was this chamber in Nehemiah 13 that was meant for something specific. Let's look. It says to put the grain offering, hmm, the frankincense, the vessels, the tithes of grain, wine, oil, which were given by commandment to the Levites, singers, and the gatekeepers, and the contributions for the priests, all gifts for God that would then bless God's people, were meant to be given. But they were all removed, and an enemy of God replaced them. The grain offering, the offering of the work of our hands was removed and was replaced with an enemy of God. Do we continue to offer the work of our hands to the Lord saying, God, whatever I put my hands to, it's yours. I guarantee when we remove that mentality from ourself, that's an open door for the enemy to move in. The frankincense, the frankincense was meant to dwell in this chamber. Did you know frankincense, it comes from a tree with deep roots? I want you to think of this in a spiritual way. That it burns, frankincense burns for a long time with a steady flame. It's literally this picture of deep rooted, steadily burning prayer. Removed. Enemy of God came in. I've been convicted in the last, I'd say two weeks of my own prayer life. Do I have a deeply rooted, steady flame of burning prayer life? If I do not, it is opening the door for a place for the enemy to come in. Vessels. It says that the vessels, now they were removed for the enemy of God. Vessels were instruments used for God's glory. Is that my mindset? Is that my perspective? 
that I just want to use whatever God has given me for his glory. When we stop being about the glory of God, when we stop gazing upon heaven and we begin to look at ourselves and we do things for our own glory, the door is open and the enemy is moving in with his suitcases. They got out the vessels. It says the tithes of grain. I believe that this is different and it's a different spin on. They had an obligation to a 10% to something specific. I want to ask you, has the Lord spoken something specifically to you in regard to giving gifts for his kingdom, gifts for him that you have cut off? Because that is a way we see in the text is moved out and the enemy comes in. New wine. We can take this a couple relationships or a couple ways, but think of it as a covenant relationship with God valuing our covenant relationship with God, fighting for intimacy with God, these things that we talk about, has that been moved out of your house? Because if it has, the enemy is moving in. Talks about the oiled, spirit-empowered anointing. See, we move this out when we begin to do things in our own strength time and time and time again. That what we used to see God's face for become, those things become menial. And then we just begin to rely on our own strength. When we stop depending as a body, as a family, as a person on the supernatural anointing of God. I open a place for the enemy to live in my house. That I'm actually preparing a place for him. The last thing it talked about was contribution for the priests. This is the responsibility, the responsibility of the people coming together to make sure that others were taken care of. Have you pushed off some responsibility? I'm talking about this body right now. Have you pushed off responsibility that belongs to you? Do you see how all of these things in Nehemiah 13 were pushed away and the slide begins to happen? That there's a place prepared for the enemy. Here's the next thing. Look at verse 6. So we saw we ignored instruction. He began to form a bond. He prepared a place. He moved something out, brought something in. Verse 6, while this was taking place, I was not in Jerusalem. For in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I went to the king. And after some time, I asked leave for the king. He resisted authority. Little H right there. He resisted authority. Eliashib, how, how did you, why, why did you move all the gifts out? Why would you do that? Aren't you close to the presence of God? Yeah, I, you know, I heard someone say once, we don't fall into sin. We walk down a staircase into it. I ignored instruction. How did I get here? I ignored instruction. I began to form a bond with something that was not of God. I prepared a place for my heart by kicking out what did belong. And then I began to resist authority. We saw here that Nehemiah wasn't present. There are two things. Uh, one of my friends, uh, who's, he's not here today. They're, they're going to a church in Wisconsin where they live. Ray Borough. I love him so much. And uh, he's a police officer. And he was talking to me. And I think this is really, really interesting. He was talking to me about the, distant, the, the, the difference in resistance. 
there's two types of resistance that they face. Uh, there's one, and it is active resistance. This is where you can obviously see uh, the person who's being arrested. It wants to swing, fight, punch, bite, spit, whatever. There's an active stance and resistance taking place. What I believe we're dealing mostly with is not active resistance, but it's passive resistance in the church. He talked about it in this way that when they, they have to put someone in handcuffs and they just keep their arm tight and they tighten up and they don't listen to commands right away, that it's this, uh, this passive resistance. See, I believe the same thing happens to us with the Lord when we begin to walk down this. We begin to resist authority, not necessarily in an active way all the time, but in this passive way, in this double-minded way in this divisive way. This is what happened with Eliashib, this high priest. He passively resisted the authority that had spoken out before him. It says that he went to Artaxerxes. Hey, can I show you a couple cool pictures? Bring up the picture of the cylinder. The Cyrus cylinder. Can everybody see that? One of our friends, uh, Seth, he went to a museum in England. Uh, this is the British Museum that has the Cyrus Cylinder. L let me read this. This is just fun, okay? Commercial break. Fun commercial break. Here we go. Before the discovery of the Cyrus Cylinder, the accounts of Ezra and Nehemiah speaking of Cyrus, allowing the Hebrew exiles to return to Jerusalem, were doubted. It seemed highly unlikely that an allowance, this is from a secular perspective, by the way, it seemed uh, highly unlikely that an allowance for a captive people to leave his kingdom, return to their own, and rebuild the temple would be made by the great Persian king. However, the Cyrus cylinder silenced the doubters by proclaiming price, uh, precisely that very thing. This was showing that these people were allowed to go home and to rebuild. They have it in a museum. Crazy, right? We believe this stuff. The world doesn't believe this, but they see something like this and they're faced with it, right? Here's another cool thing. The plate of Artaxerxes, the guy we're talking about right now. I'm, I'm a little jealous, Seth, that you got to see these with your eyes. It's pretty special. The plate of Artaxerxes, the inscription on the edge of the bowl states that it was made for Artaxerxes. It had a special design. When filled up to the shoulder, it could be balanced on one hand. Nehemiah was the cupbearer to Artaxerxes, and it is possible that he handled this very bowl while in service to the king. What? Okay, commercial over. That's pretty sweet, right? Let's read verse 8. Well, how did he respond well, he responded a lot like Jesus in the temple. And I was very angry, and I threw all the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber. I love this picture because it's this demonstration of how we can respond as spirit-filled people to the things that are against God. He takes this furniture, and I imagine that it's not him just like, okay, well, let's just, I'm not going to throw anything, don't worry, but... You just set this out here. I imagine him taking it, sliding it on the floor, throwing things out of the doorway to get rid of the evil that is inside of the house. 
Then I gave orders. So he took it first for himself, right? He didn't just give orders. He first did it himself. And they cleansed the chamber, and they brought back there the vessels of the house of God with the grain offering and the frankincense. I swept the house of evil, and I brought back what belonged. They were gifts meant for God. What is this evil? What are the Tobias that we're dealing with right now? I want to remember these, these, these three things. Fam is short for family, if you had any question. What are some of these evil things we find in the church? In Matthew 7, 15, it talks about wolves. Wolves. Uh, which are really made up of two groups, letting wolves into the church. Uh, false teachers, everyone say wolf. And a false prophet, everyone say wolf. Wolves being let into the church. People who not get it wrong or make a mistake, but they are actively leading people to get rid of what belongs in them and try to replace it with lies, with heresy, with idolatry. You see the difference? A wolf, a false teacher, a false prophet. There's another type of person. In Titus 3.10, it talks about the divisive person. These are enemies to the things that, are God, that God is doing among us. False teachers, false prophets, those who are divisive. They are anti-Christ, anti-kingdom. It says in the NASB that they're not just supposed to be warned and then have nothing to do with them, but they are to actually be rejected. Warn them once. If they do not listen, they need to be rejected because it is poison to the house of God. That's what we see, main enemies in our church. It's not necessarily those coming outside against us, but what starts to flow from within us that has to be purged out. Do you see the difference? I'm going to talk about that a little more in Mark 7. Our family. I want you to go to Galatians 19.21 real quick. 5.19 through 21. You passed my test. It says, now the works of the flesh are evident in our families. Well, what are things we have to get rid of? What is the evil Okay, this is some of the fruit of the flesh, a manifestation of the flesh. Sexual immorality, kick it out of your house. Impurity, kick it out. Sensuality, kick it out. Idolatry, say it. Sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness. Orgies and things like these. Kick them out. You are the guardian of your family. I want, I want, I want to concentrate on men who are the, over their families right now. You are the one who stands at the threshold. You are the one who has the authority for what comes in your house and what goes out. Whatever does not belong, kick it out. 
family. What about self? Okay, we're, getting a, we're gonna go a little deeper to some of these root issues that are evil in ourself. What about ourself? In James 3.16, I want you to go to Mark 7 right now, but in James 3.16, it says, where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. Jealousy, we're getting into some root things. Why, why did you do that? Why did you say that thing? Why did you allow that evil to come into to your life? Well, I was jealous. I was feeling selfish. Let's go to Mark 7. And we're going to pick up in verse 14. Do you see how we're trying to paint a picture of some of the evil things that we let in our house right now? Mark 7, verse 14. And he called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand, there is nothing outside of person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. They're like, whoa, what does that mean? Well, and when he, he had entered the house, okay, entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said, uh, then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into the person from outside cannot defile him since it enters not his heart, but his stomach? Talk about some consumption things. We're not going to go into depth about that. And is expelled. It goes right through. Verse 20. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. How so? For from within, out of the heart of man, this is what we're talking about. Out of the heart of man come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. And these evil things come from within and they defile a person. Did you know that we're given a new heart when we come into Jesus Christ? That we're given a holy place, that we're given a holy house, that we are the temple of God. Did you know just like the Israelites remembered some of the things that they experienced in Egypt when they were in slavery, and then they built this golden calf as a picture of it, as new free people, we can still go back to flesh patterns. That we can kick out what has been put in there, that we can kick out the things that belong and we can choose to receive. We can choose to let envy, pride, foolishness dwell inside of us. We got to kick it out. Have any of these things been dwelling in you? See, it's not just about us at the end of the day, about our house, because just like in the temple, these gifts that were meant for God weren't just stopping there, but they were feeding and taking care of the priest, that they were going on to affect and to support someone else's life. And when we live with this evil or with these uh, flesh patterns inside of us, that we are shortcutting what God wants to do even for somebody else. We're all connected. We're all in this together. Well, where do we see that? Go back to Nehemiah 13. Verse 10, he says, I also found out that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them. So the Levites and the singers who did the work uh, had fled each to his field. They had to go home. They weren't supported. 
So I confronted the officials and said, why is the house of God forsaken? So I gathered the tithe of the grain. I gathered them together and set them in their stations. Then all Judah brought the tithe of the grain, wine, and oil into the storehouse. And I appointed as treasurers over the storehouses, Shalmiah the priest, Zadok the scribe, and Padiah of the Levites, and as their assistant Hanan, the son of Zakur, son of Mataniah, for they were considered reliable. Remember, these are the valiant people we're talking about. They're reliable. And, and their duty was to distribute to their brothers. He gets to a part in verse 14 where he says, remember me. Sometimes when you're going through a lot and things aren't going the way you're supposed to and everyone around you is not doing what they've been told to, or they're, they're dropping their ball, you can stand before God when you are in right order and say, God, you can remember me. Remember me. Don't let all this be for naught. Remember me, God. He says, remember me, O my God, concerning this, and do not wipe out my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God and for his service. He's saying, God, look at me. Is your heart in a place where you're like, God, I, look at me, full inspection. Look at me. Look at me, God. Remember me. Remember me. As much as it has had to do with me, I am blameless before you. Remember me, God. See, that's the heart of someone who's confident in their walk with their heavenly father. Remember me, God. Remember me, God. So we saw early on that it was this you know, this dispelling, this replacement of the gifts that were meant for God that would feed God's people. Here's the second thing. How do we get to this place where an enemy lives in us? Okay. Where we allow the enemy to live in the house of God. We neglect not only the gifts that are for God, but we neglect the gifts that are from God. It's not only the gifts that are meant for him, but it's the gifts that are from him that are neglected. Look in verse 15. It says, In those days I saw in Judah people treading wine presses on the Sabbath. Everyone say, Oh no. And bring in heaps of grain and loading them on donkeys and also wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. Oh no. And I warned them on that day when they sold food. Tyrians also who lived in the city brought in fish and all kinds of goods and sold them on the Sabbath. Okay, so here's the deal. Every time I say Sabbath, you can say, oh, no, okay? Well, let me push up my glasses. There we go. On the Sabbath. To the people of Judah in Jerusalem itself. That was a test. You passed once again. Then I confronted the nobles of Judah, and said, what is this evil thing that you are doing, profaning the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers act in this way? Did not our God bring all disaster on us and on this city? Now you are bringing more wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. See, we know a lot of things about the Sabbath. You know, for us, 
who are in Christ, did you know that there, there's a greater thing that in Jesus we find our eternal Sabbath rest? Did you know that? That doesn't take away and minimize that God gave a gift to his people of set time for them to just like he stood back and got to admire his creation, that we can stand back and admire the partnership that we get to have with God, the work that he's doing in us, the work that he's doing through us. And he gave this to his people as a gift. I want you to pretend, I saw a, uh, this morning, uh, sometimes we meet at a coffee shop just to go over message stuff and talk about what we, we sense the Lord doing. And this guy rolls up and I think it was like a 1978-ish Stingray Corvette. That's a car for those of you who aren't, aren't in the car scene. And, and he rolls up, it's convertible, red, cool looking car. I, I have this thing, if there's ever like a guy driving a cool car, they want to hear it. So I just tell them, hey man, cool car. And they're like, yeah. <laughs> they know. I, you know, I'll throw them a bone every now and then. And so imagine if he gave me this car. I would be like... Okay, I'm going to sell this and buy an HVAC. <laughs> That's the first thing I do. Dead serious. I'm having this thought as this is going on. Like, I, welcome to my world. And I'm like, what if he told me, I'm going to give you this car, but you have to use it. Would I feel wrong? Would I feel bad to have to use the gift that was given to me in the way that it was intended to be used? And that's the picture of the Sabbath, what we're talking about. God gave the Sabbath to his people in Exodus chapter 31. It says, it is a sign forever between me and the people of Israel that in six days the Lord made heaven and earth. And on the seventh day he rested and he, ref he was refreshed. That he rested and he was refreshed. That there's this gift of refreshment that he was giving to his people. And he's saying, I'm giving you this, but I want you to use it. I want you to drive it like it was intended. Because it's going to bless your life. I want you to be refreshed. In Exodus 16, it says, see, verse 29. The Lord has given you the Sabbath. It's a gift. That is meant to bring refreshing into your life. We know in Mark 2.27 it says, And the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. It was this gift. What was happening, they were neglecting the gifts from God. There's, there's a parallel here to sexuality in the context of marriage. That is, I, I, don't, I don't have time to go over and go through that now, but it's just, God has given us certain gifts for specific times that he wants us to use and to enjoy. Don't neglect the gifts of God. He wants to refresh you. You know, it talked about the Tyrians. It says uh, that these Tyrians, these were foreigners in verse 16, that they were using, this is what was happening, they were using their freedom... They're foreigners. They didn't, they didn't, the Sabbath wasn't the gift for them. They were using their freedom to lead other people into compromise. In compromising, com compromising. Have you ever seen someone's freedom in the Lord 
seeing a perceived freedom of someone in the world, then it's caused you to compromise. Well, they can do this. I always felt like I shouldn't do this, but they can do this. Maybe I'll start doing this. It's a freedom. They get to enjoy it. I, I'll partake in these things. A bond was forming, and they were making room for it. Compromise. Have you made a compromise? What does Nehemiah do? Let's look at verse 19. As soon as it began to grow dark at the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I commanded that the doors should be shut. If you're taking notes right now, I want you to write this. How to shut the door of compromise in my life. How to shut the door of compromise. As it began to grow dark, here's the first thing. You recognize a time frame. I believe that this can be an application and instruction for us. Is there a specific time that you tend to compromise? Things always seem to unfold in a certain way, and it's about 9 o'clock at night. Here's the setting. It's, it's dusk. I'm, I'm kind of alone, and compromise takes place. Identify the time of compromise. Not only does that happen, but guess what? He shuts the gate. There's a time frame. He creates boundaries. He creates boundaries. Here is a gate. I am not going to let anything in past this gate. This is where the gate is set. This is what is going to be outside of the gate. This is what is inside the gate. Specific boundaries. Do you have specific boundaries that are set up in your life? We talk about, uh, we've talked about this a couple of times. I think people have mentioned it. Some people know. A boundary that we have is I never ride alone in a car with a female who's not a family member. I learned that from, from another pastor. This is something they practiced. It's a boundary. You can see where it can be broken and you can see where it's not. It's definitive. Do you have boundaries set up in your life? Look what else he did. He says, and I stationed some of my servants at the gates. He brought lookouts, accountability. There are people in my life who know the time frame in which I typically compromise, the time span, when it typically is. There are people in my life who know my exact boundaries, and I set them up as accountability so that I don't either open the gate or fall prey to that time. Does that make sense? Nehemiah set up lookouts. Do you have lookouts in your life? Do you have people in your life who are like, hey, I'm looking out for you. I remember that you said this is a situation where you typically choose evil instead of sin, and this is the boundary. I see you climbing on the fence of the boundary that you have set up. I'm your lookout. Get away from the fence. Do you have people like that in your life? If you don't, I hope this week you will invite people to be lookouts for you. This is how the body of God is meant to work together. And guess what? This is one of my favorite verses in the entire book of Nehemiah. Look at verse 20. Then the merchants and the sellers of all kinds of wares, they lodged outside Jerusalem once or twice. They're right at the gate, right at the other side of the boundary, knocking at the gate, wanting to bring back in, right? But I warned them and said to them, why do you lodge outside the wall? If you do so again, I will lay hands on you. 
I love that part. If you come in here again, I'm going to lay my hands on you. And it's not going to be for a shoulder rub. <laughs> There's consequences that we enact consequences. Well, if I, uh, my, my lookout, if, if this is the time frame that I'm entering into and I break this boundary and I don't tell you accountability, this is where things need to go next. This is the next path of action that we need. Do you see how this is shaping and forming how we can uh, not neglect the gifts of God that were given to us? Timing, boundaries, lookouts, consequences. This is how we shut the door of compromise in our life. We don't want to tread on the good things that God has given us. And we can fight and we can win when we do it together. Here's the last thing. Remember, just for a quick recap, we replace the gifts that are for God. We neglect, we neglect the gifts from God. Here's the last thing. We create a culture against God. Do you see how this is like a staircase? That it's first, it's neglecting the gifts for God. This is kind of harder to see. You know, and someone not, not really able to put a finger on it. Then we have someone neglecting the gifts that are from God. More of a stance. And then it's turning all outright to creating a culture that's against God. There's this progression that's happening in Nehemiah 13. That allows the enemy to come in and to dwell in a place where he had no business dwelling. At the end of verse 21 and 22, he guards and he guards the gates. And he says, remember this also. And in verse 23, in those days, I saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. Did you know Ashdod, this was one of the, the five top Philistine cities. Uh, if you've been following the news lately, rockets were just shot over Ashdod in Israel. Uh, there's 250 plus rockets shot from the Gaza Strip in Israel. Literally over Ashdod. They had to cancel schools in Ashdod. This is the place we're reading about right here. Ammon and Moab. It was a Philistine city. And half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod. And they could not speak the language of Judah, but only the language of each people. This is what tells me Nehemiah was gone longer than a year and a half. That there were some children that were raised up not being able to speak the language of God's people, but the language of foreigners. Did you know it's not just talking about language, the words, the sentence structures that were coming out of their mouth. It's communicating this deep tie. Anyone who has studied anthropology or sociology knows this. That there's a deep tie between language and culture. Some people have said that language is culture and culture is language. That these two things feed each other. It's not as though he is saying, you know, we all speak Spanish and they couldn't speak Spanish anymore. And they just began to speak English. He's saying, no, they've been raised in an entirely different culture. The culture is different 
a sociologist wrote this. He says, learning a language, therefore, is not only learning the alphabet, the meaning, the grammar, rules, the arrangement of words, but is also learning the behavior of the society and its cultural customs. Thus, language, and those who teach it, should always contain some reference to the culture, the whole form which the particular language is extracted. There was an entire group of kids who were raised in a culture, a Philistine culture that was against God. They created a culture against it. They stopped speaking the language. They stopped doing the things that they once did. They stopped worshiping the same. They created a culture. Verse 25. This part is kind of fun too. He says, and I confronted them, not the children, the parents, okay? I confronted them, and I cursed them, and I beat some of them, and I pulled out their hair. I won't say cat fight. A passionate response. He said, I cursed them, I beat some of them, and I pulled out their hair. Why did he respond this way? Because they were leading their children into sin. This is what Jesus says about leading a child into sin. In Matthew 18, 5 through 7, he says, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better. Okay? This is what Jesus is saying. It would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. He's like, you know what the, the good consequence for this person would be? For them to have a rock tied around their neck and for them to drown a painful, slow death if they lead one of my kids astray. I'd say compared to that, Nehemiah took a pretty easy approach. How we're raising the generation behind us is so important. Are we the ones who are championing the language, the culture of people of God? When no one else will. Their schools won't. I promise you that. Their teachers won't. Some of their family members won't. For us as parents, physically, for us as spiritual parents, we will. We are going to teach them the language. We are going to teach them the culture. We will have no part in creating a culture that is against God. He gives an example. Look at Solomon. He's saying, I, I don't want you to miss it. This isn't about the kids not learning it. It's about you, the adult. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin on account of such women? Among the many nations, there was no king like him, and he was beloved by his God. And God made him king over all Israel. He's, he's hinting at the priest a little bit here. There's another guy. He was a king. Loved God. He had this relationship with God. But guess what? Nevertheless, foreign women made even him to sin. Shall we then listen to you and do all this great evil 
and to act treacherously against our God by marrying foreign women. Hey, parents, this happened because you married foreign women. You brought things that were foreign against the culture of God into your house. Get rid of it. Get rid of it. This isn't about the kids. This is about you. It's very humbling and sobering when we take the responsibility for our kids and our kids' actions. That's what he's teaching. He said, this starts with you. You can't control your kids. But listen, this starts with you. Start with you. What have you let into your house that should not have belonged there? What have you let in? He brings it back home to our good friend Eliashib, this high priest who we're like. He says, and one of the sons of Jehoiada, who was the son of Eliashib, the high priest, was the son-in-law of Sanballat, another enemy of God. So remember, this is now the grandson of Eliashib married Sanballat's daughter, another enemy. Just like last week when we talked about valiant people and Benaiah, that there's a line of valiance that is passed down. Did you also know that there's a line of evil that is passed down? There's a line of compromise that is passed down. That's why it has to start with us. It has to. We have to be the ones to bear under the responsibility. He ends, he says, remember them, oh my God. Remember God. Remember, remember that they have desecrated the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. Well, this is how he ends it. You'd expect Nehemiah just to wash his hands, to walk away, to go back, but he doesn't do that. He keeps going. Verse 30, thus I cleansed them from everything foreign, and I established the duties of the priests and the Levites, each in his work. Once again, I set them on right footing. I set them in a firm place, and I provided for the wood offering at appointed times and for the first fruits. Remember me, oh my God, for good. See, part of being a, a leader is even when things have fallen apart or deteriorated with those who are under you, that you keep fighting, that you keep providing, that you keep setting things in place, that you keep establishing, and that is just what Nehemiah does. We're moving forward together as a body into an amazing season. We have an amazing season ahead. There's going to be a season of unity ahead for us, a season of deepening relationships ahead of us, a season of moving in the power of the Holy Spirit ahead of us, a season of prayer and crying out to the Lord ahead of us. We have great things that are ahead. We're not going to slip. I want to invite you to stand with me. Have you let anything evil into the house of God? Maybe as you think about the church, you're like, man, I did have a few conversations that could be categorized as divisive. I don't want that. Hey, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Praise God. 
We're going to confess those things to him. Maybe your family, you've let things into your household. Foolishness, pride, neglect. You've let something into your house and you're like, God, this isn't evil. I've, I've, I've pushed off the anointing by the power of the Spirit. I've pushed off deep prayer by the Holy Spirit. I, I, I want those things back, God. I, I want those things once again. Hey, we can repent and he is faithful to forgive us because he loves us. There's no condemnation. Maybe in your own heart, you've let things take root. Jealousy, selfish ambition. We're going to do away with all those things. We're going to kick those things out right now. And guess what? We're going to do it with a smile on our face. We're going to do it with a smile on our face because we trust that when we remove these things, that God will replace them just like he did in Nehemiah. That they weren't lost. The frankincense wasn't lost forever. But guess what? God provided them and he gave them back because he is the good giver. So right now, I, just, I want us to take a moment and I really want you to force yourself. If you're like, I don't smile. I'm not one of the, I want you to force yourself to smile right now. I just want you to begin to smile right now. And just, just give anything over to him, any evil that you have let dwell in your house for far too long. Come on, you can use your words. We have nothing to be ashamed of. We have nothing to be embarrassed of in this house. I pray fear would be kicked out right now in Jesus' name. You have no place. I pray for doubt to be kicked out. Come on, keep smiling. Force yourself to smile. I pray there would be just a new restoration of the gifts from God, a new desire to bring gifts for God in his house. Come on, anything else? Just keep, keep smiling to the Lord. He sees you. His joy is going to be your strength. Kick it out. So God, we say that we receive once again the grain offering into the house. That the work of our hands is going to be a sweet offering and aroma to you, God. Lord, we receive the frankincense, this deeply rooted prayer back into our lives that burns hot and it burns for a long time. We receive that because you desire for that to come in. God, we receive, Lord, the work that we're doing on behalf of your glory. God, would you give us an attitude of thankfulness that will drive our desire to glorify you. Replace that, God. Replace that in us. God, we pray for, the, for these responsibilities and these tithes to not be a burden to us anymore, but to be a great joy and a source of joy, of heavenly joy in our life, God. Lord, we pray for a new wine to come forth, that this fresh, new covenant revelation that we have through Jesus Christ would be what is first and foremost on our minds. God, that when we wake up in the morning, that we would 
desire the relationship with you. We would desire to know you, to be known by you, that we would cry out, that we would be a people who spend so much time in our closets praying that people would think we're insane, God, that we would care so much. God, I pray for your oil from heaven to anoint us. God, that a new stage and a new realm of spirit-empowered ministry would take place in this building, would take place in our homes, and would take place in ourselves, God. Lord, would your Holy Spirit manifest in ways that would bring glory to you, God, that would bring glory to the name of Jesus Christ, that unbelievers would come in and secrets of hearts would be exposed and they would fall on their faces and glorify you, the King of Kings. God, we don't want to resist authority. We don't want to ignore your instruction. We don't want to form a, bo a bond. We want to abide in you. God, we want to prepare a place for you. God, this house, I want you to put a hand over your heart right now. And I want you to say this if you mean it. This house is reserved for you and for you alone. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Love you guys. Be blessed.